When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 436 of Sustainable Minimalists. This is a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. I like to think of today's show as an onion with layers. On the outer layer, yes, this is a show about plant-based living. Every January, in honor of Veganuary, I air an episode on plant-based living because number one, plant-based eating as a lifestyle is one of the best ways, if not the best way, to substantially reduce your carbon footprint. And reason number two is because even though I know all of this, even though I know that plant-based living is better for the planet, definitely better for the animals, and better for my own personal health, I still have trouble. I've been a vegetarian for decades, and I still have trouble getting rid of the dairy. So that's layer one of today's episode. But on a deeper level, this episode is about something more, and I have a very roundabout way today of explaining what that deeper layer is. And if you don't care, if you just want interview, go ahead and skip ahead to minute four, and we'll bring you right there. But if you're with me for a Stephanie story, here it is. Earlier this week, I was interviewed on another podcast. I was the guest. The host and I chatted back and forth through email ahead of time discussing what the topic was going to be. I had an idea. It had something to do with eco-friendly living. Got it. I'm on board. I'm prepared. Let's do it. And the host, by the way, their listenership is a bit religious, let's say, about right-leaning. And so we start the interview, and the first question surprised me. I was shocked. The first question was, for those of us listening who don't believe in climate change, why should we be eco-friendly? That essentially was the question. Maybe the words were changed up a bit. But so many thoughts flashed through my eyes in the span of three seconds. The first thought I had was, oh my goodness, it's 2024. Uh, The effects of climate change are all around us. And are there still climate deniers? Are there people who don't believe in climate change? I mean, I'm just so insulated in this topic, in this world. I honestly knew that people denied climate change. Politicians don't believe in climate change. But I didn't realize that that was happening on a mass scale. And so the question was like, what? (laughs) Really? Can you choose to believe or not believe in something that 94% of climate scientists agree is occurring and agree that climate change is human-made? I don't know. How do I answer this question? How do I talk to somebody who might not believe in what science is telling them is truth? 
so that was one. The second thought I had was, well, if your base doesn't believe in climate change, then why are we doing the show? That was another thought that popped through my head. And so I scrambled together an answer. I scrambled one together. I have no idea if I did the question justice. I don't have no idea if my answer reached the base that I was trying to reach. And after the interview was done, I sat down and I really thought, well, how could I have better answered that question? If I was prepared and if I was on my game, what I would have said was that even though all of us have deeply entrenched, deeply held beliefs and values and lifestyles, it is still important to hear other perspectives. It is still important to be flexible and supple in our reasoning so as to not only hear alternate viewpoints, but also be able to change our own viewpoints and values and lifestyles if and when evidence that contradicts what we've long held comes to light. That's precisely what today's episode is about. That's that deeper onion. And today, to help me parse through taking in information and letting old beliefs die is Colleen Patrick Goudreau. She is an author. She is a podcaster. She is a joyful vegan, and she is a compassionate human being. Colleen, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. How are you? Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to connect with you and continue on my veganuary tradition of covering plant-based diets in the month of January. I was a little bit behind <laughs> this month, but we're getting it in. I would love it if you told us about yourself. Let's start with your own journey towards plant-based living. How did you get here? Mm. Well, I grew up eating meat, dairy, and eggs like most Americans. Grew up on the East Coast, actually. Grew up in New Jersey and ate everything that walked and swam and flew. <laughs> Had no idea that I was eating animals and was definitely one of those kids who loved animals and would never have hurt an animal. In fact, I did a lot of intervention when I was young. And like a lot of kids, if I saw there was any suffering, I wanted to intervene and help I didn't know I was eating animals and I loved the taste. By the time we're what, six, seven, we have developed the taste for the, for the fat, for the mouthfeel, right, of animal products. My father owned ice cream store, so I ate a lot of ice cream and was also someone who cared very much. And my parents supported that. I mean, you know, most, most adults do. I think we find it really beautiful when we see an animal and a child interacting. We just really see the, the depth of their compassion. And uh, I was that kid. And I was the kid who had, like most kids, images of animals all over my pajamas, all over my clothing, all over my bed clothes, all over my wallpaper, stuffed animals in my bed. Like most kids, I had books read to me about animals, books that used animals to teach me how to read, how to count, how to spell. Like in all these ways, we make the connection between animals and humans. And so I was always a very curious person when I was about now 19 or so, I was working in a bookstore and I picked up a book called Diet for a New America by John Robbins. And it was the first time I had ever seen anything related to how we raise 
animals for consumption. And it just woke me up. It was the first, it was the first thing that started me on the path of what I call awakening because we are kept asleep. We are really kept ignorant of, of most of the things, whether it's health related or ethically related. It's we're kept in the dark because most of the people who are controlling it know that's really painful and know that people wouldn't want to be part of it and that it doesn't align with their ethics and it doesn't align with their values and it doesn't align with eating healthfully. So I started my journey to awakening and it started off stopping eating land animals. And I think it happens for a lot of people that way. I stopped eating meat, dairy, uh, sorry, meat and fish, you know, land animals, but I kept eating dairy and ice cream and cheese. And I told myself what a lot of us tell ourselves, which is I'm not causing harm because I'm getting organic milk or I'm getting free range eggs because we are good people. We are compassionate people. I think we come into this world compassionate and we want to align ourselves with that belief we have about ourselves. And so we have to tell ourselves a thing that aligns with that belief, right? So I kept eating those things but I kept being curious and I kept reading. And so I finally read a book called Slaughterhouse. I do read happy books as well. <laughs> I do read happy books too. But I read a book called Slaughterhouse. And it was an investigative journalist who went into slaughterhouses around the country and asked the slaughterhouse workers the same questions. And the answers were incredibly painful and incredibly striking for me. And it was then that I made the connection, not just about how the animals were raised, but that we were bringing animals into this world only to kill them. Like just, it's such a macabre business model, right? And so in the meantime, in doing that, the culture of violence that we create in slaughterhouses, however they're raised and whatever it's for, whether it's for meat or dairy or eggs, this culture of violence where the people who are working in these places are completely desensitized to their own compassion and they're desensitized to the suffering of animals. It was the most painful thing I had ever read. And it was the most powerful thing in terms of me just making this connection and becoming fully awake. And so I talk a lot about language and how we frame things. And I I talk about the phrase that we use becoming vegan. So I want to say I became vegan. But what's curious to me about that expression is that it makes it sound like I became something different than I was. And in truth, I don't think we do become something different. I think we become a more authentic version of who we already are. And so the way I talk about that process is that I actually removed the blocks to the compassion that had already been inside of me. Hmm. What a story. What a journey, Colleen. Uh, You mentioned there that you didn't know any better than you educated yourself, essentially, and then you changed. You actually said you've removed the blocks to compassion that were perhaps holding you back. And wouldn't it be great if that happened for all of us, right? We understood the truth behind uh, the industrialized meat and dairy systems that keep our (laughs) grocery stores stocked. Uh, But I find that for an awful lot of people, actually, what happened to you doesn't happen to them. In 2024, maybe not everybody knows the grim details of what happens in slaughterhouses, but we certainly have an idea. Uh, Investigative journalism has made great strides in this arena. I find that what often happens is that people get a little bit of information and then they step back. (laughs) They 
bury their heads in the sand, so to speak. They don't want to know. Do you have anything to say on that? Why do some people learn and then do better and some people learn and shy away from what they've learned? Oh God, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> I wrote a whole book on it. So my book, The Joyful Vegan, is about that process, is about, first of all, if I talk about this as becoming awake, it means that we were asleep. And so what's the process of becoming asleep? And so I talk about that to start off with and 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 using the expression that is used in psychology, which is willful blindness. And uh, and then I talk about the journey of actually becoming awake and kind of what happens even once you become awake, because once you become vegan, there's still a journey, right? Once you become awake, there's still more to go. You're not done. Like there's still a lot more to say. But let's talk about that because it is it is so vital because it's true. It's true that people say, I don't want to know. I don't want to look. I don't want to see. Right. And so I find hope in that because they know that if they look, they're going to be compelled to change. So the reason I find hope in that is because I know people are like on the edge and they know that if they looked, they would be compelled to do something different. And so we are afraid of not veganism. We're not afraid of eating plants. Like that's not what we're afraid of. We're afraid of the unknown and we're afraid of change. And we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side of this thing that we know could be explosive, could just change everything for us, can change who we are, how we eat, how we travel, how we interact with loved ones, how we eat out, all of it, right? So we're afraid because we don't want to change. We're afraid because we don't know what the change is going to mean for us. And we really underestimate how social we are. We are social beings as human beings, as homo sapiens. We are first and foremost social beings. And if we think in any way that it's going to impact how we operate in this world with the people we know and love, that's really threatening. And the other thing that's really threatening is that if we look, it might challenge our belief about ourselves that we are good people. We do have to believe that we are good people. Everybody has to believe that. And so if we start looking at things that actually challenge that idea, that is really scary. And so ultimately, when we have a cognitive dissonance, which is what most, most of us has, cognitive dissonance means that we are doing something that we know is causing harm, but we want to keep doing the thing because it brings us pleasure or validates us in somehow, some way. So the cognitive dissonance is something we all live with. We feel dissonant when we consider that animals suffer for our consuming them, right? For our desire to have meat, dairy, and eggs. That's cognitive dissonance. Well, how do we respond to that? How do we reconcile the fact that animals do suffer and that we're creating culture of violence and that we're suffering for it and yet we like it and yet we're used to it? How do we reconcile that altogether? Well, the answer is we either change our behavior or we change our thinking about our behavior. Those are the two things we do. So people who change their behavior, people like me who became vegetarian first and then vegan, people who change their thinking that's when we say things like, oh, but the animals were here for us. Oh, but we need meat to survive. Oh, it's not going to be healthy if I stop eating it. Oh, the animals don't feel the same pain we do. Oh, this is the hierarchy of, of life. Those are the things we have to tell ourselves in order to keep doing the thing that we're doing that we know we're uncomfortable doing. So we're supported in that. In all of our structures, we are supported in believing that we're doing the right thing, that we're doing the necessary thing, that we're doing the natural thing, right? 
our parents support it, our family supports it, our teachers support it, our uh, governments support it, our the advertising supports it. Why? Because if we change, first of all, it's obvious that if we change the, you know, the people who are making the products are going to, you know, because this is obviously a, you know, money-driven endeavor, of course, obviously it's a profit-driven endeavor, it just is. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a comment. It's just, it's the truth. <laughs> if you, if, if you have a business and you're not profit-driven, then you're doing something wrong. So, I mean, it is a profit-driven, you know, venture, but in all the other ways, especially with our relationships, the reason why people don't want us to change is because once one person in a dance changes the steps, the other person is compelled to have to change their steps as well. And so everyone wants us to stay the same. Now, the thing to know is that once we change that dance, people will fight it. They will resist it. They will resent it. And then they stop resenting it and resisting it. And they realize, oh, your dance is pretty nice. And I want to learn those steps. And I can, I can do that too. And oh, I already do that, but I need to learn more. It does happen. People do shift when we shift. But this is the stuff that we're all so afraid of. And this is the stuff that's so ironic to me when people say, don't tell me, you know, I don't want to know when they say that, you know, I don't want to, be, it's going to, it's going to be so restricting. It's going to be so limiting. I don't want to be limited. And yet we literally limit our awareness. We literally restrict our knowledge. We literally restrict the potential to be the people we say we want to be the healthiest, the most compassionate, the kindest. We restrict that by saying, don't tell me. So what I say to people, I'm not even telling you to go vegan. I'm just saying, be open. Just be willing to look, just be willing to be open to the possibilities that there's something on the other side of what you know now. And the truth is, it's really good. And it does take courage to say, I'm going to try to do something different. I'm going to at least be willing to look. I'm going to watch a documentary. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to talk to someone who's vegan. I'm going to ask questions. It takes courage to do that. And that's all we can do. Hmm. I really respect your answer there, Colleen, the willful blindness. I mean, I think that you're coming towards plant-based living through the lens of animal rights and compassion towards animals. I love animals as well. I think they're wonderful. I don't want to contribute to their harm. I would say for me, I'm more interested in veganism as a lifestyle for the environmental benefits, which by the way, listeners are massive. And still others would come to the plant-based conversation through the lens of human health. Research abounds with the uh, health benefits associated with a plant-based diet, minimizing or even eliminating meat and dairy from our diets. Uh, and so I'm saying that to say that all the reasons, like literally every single one, points towards plant-based as the best way to feed ourselves and our families. It's the way in which the masses, the vast majority of us need to eat if we want to continue to have a sustainable future on this planet. And yet, so many of us have trouble changing our diets. It's that willful ignorance piece. I have been a vegetarian for 24 years, almost a quarter of a century. And I know, like I cognitively know that um, if I wanted to live my environmental values, I would stop eating dairy. I know that. I'm awakened to that point, let's say. However, I still feel as a conscious and awakened being, so to speak, that makes me sound so fancy. I'm not, but I know I know what the research says. Um, I'm still having so much trouble just taking that last little step uh, for so many reasons. But 
what would you say to listeners like me who know all the reasons, they know what the best thing is for them, for the planet, for the animals, and still they're having trouble? What would you, what mm-hmm. advice would you give? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is powerful stuff. There is something really emotional that we hang on to, especially with food and especially with dairy. I mean, there's something really, really fundamentally emotional that people are connected. And so it's one of the things I talk about is that, you know, it's not, you don't love cheese that much. There's something there underneath it that is resonating for you, that is giving you something that is satisfying some part of you that you are holding on to. And so it is a matter of, you know, again, language, it's not giving up, it's letting go. And, and it's being willing to let go and it's being willing to look at what is it that I'm getting? Is it, are are there memories that I have? Is there, what story am I telling myself that I'm not willing to let this go? What am I not willing to look at that I'm not willing to let this go? Right. So, so there is something really underneath there. Cause I know, I know, I know dairy is great, but it's not that great. And, and of course, you know, the bottom line is it's not that we need dairy. It's that we love fat and we love salt and we love flavor and we love texture and we love familiarity but what we do is we focus on the on the on the form of those things of those qualities rather than focusing on the qualities themselves so i would say for someone who says i really have a hard time giving up dairy i really have a hard time giving up meat or whatever you know fish or i i could give up everything but i couldn't give up chicken the first thing i would say is to those folks then don't then give up everything except chicken like just start somewhere right obviously that's a good place to start now a quarter of a century in you could probably you know look at maybe the time to let go of the next <laughs> the next thing right being dairy but the se- the second thing i would say is when you say that you're craving dairy or meat or whatever uh think about what it is that you really so you know i said the emotional part sure maybe there's a memory you have of your grandmother and dairy and mac and cheese and something like that so there might be something resonating for you emotionally but the other thing i would say is well what is it that you really want if you looked underneath the form you'd go oh, i just want something fatty or i want something creamy or i want a certain mouthfeel or i want something familiar and i don't want to i don't want to i mean there is a bit of like a tantrum that some people like don't i don't take that away from me. I don't want to lose the thing that I know and love so much, right? So there's a bit of also kind of clutching on to something we know that's familiar. But if it's familiarity, fine, have it in the same form that you're used to. Have mac and cheese, but try it with a non-dairy cheese. You know, um, and there's so many amazing cheeses out there now, especially, you know, some really nice sophisticated cheeses that are cashew-based that you have with a glass of wine and some crackers and apples and pears and whatever, right? So Think about what it is that you're holding on to and meet that need with the non-dairy version or the non-meat version. So, and then the last thing I would say is I really do believe in doing something for a period of time that enables you to see what your old habits are and mostly enable you to replace them with new habits. So that's the principle behind Veganuary. It's the principle behind my 30-day vegan challenge. I, I, I started in 2011. I mean, this was the first 30-day vegan challenge there was. You can find it online. You can also get the book. I don't care if you do it with me or anybody else. The point is when you stop something for a length of time, you recognize your habits that you do not see when you're still engrossed in those habits. Try something for 30 days because everybody says I don't eat a lot and you don't know how much you eat until you stop. Everybody says I don't watch a lot of TV and you don't know how much you watch until you stop. Everyone says I'm not on Instagram a lot. And you don't know how much you are until you stop. So it's the same principle, just giving yourself a chance to to try something new and different. 
So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. So I want to spend the rest of our time together, Colleen, if it's okay with you, is talking about those beliefs that us meat and dairy eaters cling onto in the face of uh, potential change or in the face of information that <laughs> we don't want to hear, those myths, perhaps. The big one that I want to talk to you first about is the one that I hear all the time, which is that if you're a vegan, you're going to have a protein deficiency. You need meat and dairy to you know, get that protein. Talk to me about it. So number one, if we gave the opportunity for most people who say that to think for one second and respond to it themselves, they don't believe that. It's just this knee-jerk reaction we have to, again, telling ourselves the things we need to tell ourselves to keep doing the things we're doing and be comfortable with it. The biggest myth around making a change, especially towards eating plant-based is that we believe the nutrients we need are animal-based. And we have all been raised believing the nutrients we need are animal-based, right? We we see this in, especially having grown up when I grew up. Now, things are changing in terms of the government uh, nutrition standards, and they're changing in the United States, they're changing in Canada, they're changing around the world in terms of the government nutrition recommendations, right? When I grew up, you know, there was the pyramid, then there was the four food groups. I mean, there was just all these different, they change every, what is it, six years or seven years or something. They change. Well, what we're seeing now is at least where it used to just say meat, it's saying protein. I mean, that's a good thing in the sense that 
it's including all of the plant foods. It's annoying because I think we just over obsess about these single nutrients. So, but the, but the truth is when I was growing up and it's still the case in most dietary recommendations and especially in schools where a lot of we, you know, a lot of us are learning these things is that we're taught that the nutrients we need are animal-based. The bottom line is if everyone listening walked away with the idea that the nutrients we need are plant-based, I would be happy because what we do is we go through an animal to get to the nutrients that the animals get because the animals eat plants. We don't eat carnivores. We eat herbivores. And those herbivores are getting all of their nutrients from plants. And so when we are eating or drinking cow's milk, for instance, you know, everyone was like, oh, because I'm getting, I want calcium. Okay. Well, where do you think the cows got their <laughs> calcium in their milk? Where any female does, and that's through consuming calcium because calcium is a mineral found in the ground. And so I get calcium from plants, right? Now in the dairy industry, because the dairy industry has to live up to these claims that it's a high calcium food, they are supplementing the cow's feed with calcium, right? Because they're not eating grass, because they're not being foraged. They're not. They're they're consuming, they're on dry lots, they're consuming um, just feed. And that feed is supplemented with calcium. Why would we go through an animal to just get the calcium that we could supplement with or more nutritionally, get it through the greens, get it through the beans, get it through the foods that already have calcium, right? That's one example. Iron is another one. Iron is a mineral. We don't mine minerals from animals. We mine minerals from the ground. It is a mineral that's found in the ground. Why do animals have iron? Because they eat plants. Again, in the industrialized animal factory system, they are supplementing all of it, including B12. B12 is the only nutrient that is not plant-based, but it's also not animal-based. It is bacteria-based, right? And so why is there a lot of B12 in animal products? Well, first of all, they're feeding B12 as supplements to the animals. And also because we're eating these animals who have B12 in their guts. And again, we can just go right to the source and get it from get it from the soil. I mean, I'm, I'm not telling people to go eat dirt, but, <laughs> but it is a nutrient that they're already supplementing in the animal factory system. You can do this with omega-3 fatty acids, same thing. The fish don't come into this world with omega-3 fatty acids for all of us to eat. They eat the algae and they're eating the phytoplankton and that's where the omega-3s are. So we can just skip the middle animal and go directly to the source. And that is what I just really encourage people to kind of think about. You don't have to have a degree in nutrition to understand it. We just have to understand that it is so incredibly wasteful to bring animals into this world so that we could go through them to get to the nutrients that are plant-based. It's just so macabre. It's wasteful. It's unhealthy. And I think it's just an old, archaic business model that's not working anymore. You know, maybe it worked when there were not, you know, so many billions of people on the planet, right? I don't even think it worked then, but the point is it's just so embedded and entrenched that we're resisting letting go of something that I think we will eventually let go of, but it's just that we are slow moving when it comes to change. And that means, you know, whether it's industrial change, whether it's like, you know, coming from the top or it's coming from us, we, we already know that individually it's, we resist change. So of course, an entire industry that's profit driven is also resisting change. Mm -hmm. As you're talking there, I'm thinking, you know, so I do, I talk a lot about conscious consumption of stuff, of products, of clothes, of, I don't know, kitchenware, whatever the stuff is, like buying better. And 
sifting through the marketing messages that are thrown at us. Let's not forget that food is also products in our industrialized food system. I mean, I'm thinking about the marketing messages that we receive every single day from these industries telling us that meat is healthy or dairy provides calcium or whatever the messaging is. Those messages, maybe they didn't originate in the industry. Maybe they originated in old, now defunct science, but they were definitely amplified by the industries. I'm thinking about the Got Milk campaign circa, what was that, the 90s? I grew up with it. I was told, you need cow's milk to grow up, right? And now we're learning about growth hormones that are were in our milk as children and it's still in some brands today. And the deleterious health effects of the stuff in that milk as well. And so I'm just trying to make the connection between not buying some trinket for your house because the marketing doesn't match up with the thing. And it's I think it's the same with food and dairy. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, this is a profit-driven business. Anybody who says it's not is, you know, is just has been convinced and persuaded by these marketing messages because we have these romanticized notions about animal agriculture. We have romanticized notions about agriculture in general, I think. And so we kind of romanticize farmers. And I'm not saying farmers are bad people, but, you know, this is a business. It's not altruism. It's not charity. This, these are businesses. And so any commentary on the fact that they will try and, re- you know, reduce cost and increase profit, it's not, again, a judgment. It's just that's a good business model. <laughs> so you should be doing that. But of course, the way that's going to work is that they're going to cut corners so that there is compromise. And the compromise, obviously, that, you know, the, the, those who pay the most are the animals themselves and certainly us who have been persuaded by all of these messages. So absolutely. And, you know, again, you know, when I when I talk about this in the Joyful Vegan, in that first chapter on willful blindness, one of the things that also keeps us believing these myths is authority. So we really value authority. And that comes either from our parents or doctors, the medical industry, the government, the schools, the teachers who are telling us this, or even the industry themselves. So we really value and really overemphasize, obviously, authority. But that's something that we have to be aware of to know why people are holding on to this stuff. And it's why I often talk also about the fact that, you know, my I, I grew up eating this stuff too. My parents weren't trying to hurt me. They thought they were doing the best thing because that's the information they had. And that's the information that they had been given. And that's what, how they grew up. So again, there's a point at which we have to say, it's not the industry's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not the government's fault. At some point, we have to take responsibility and say, I'm willing to challenge what I know. That is what it means to be conscious. That is what it means to be an adult. That is what it means to evolve, is to challenge what we know. Why do I believe what I know? And am I willing to challenge it to know something different? And so at some point, you know, because as I said, we're the ones who in the end sabotage ourselves. We're the ones in the end who complain about, oh, it takes time to chop vegetables. Oh, I'm going to have to learn some recipes. Oh, I don't have time to cook. Really? So we say that we want this. We say that we want to eat healthier. We say that we want to do better. We say that we want to give our children better nutrition. We say these things. And yet we make these excuses that actually sabotage us. So in the end, it is up to each and every one of us 
to say, regardless of what I've been told and regardless of what they're teaching and regardless of what I'm being sold, I'm willing to at least question what I know and see if there's a different answer that might bring me to a better place. I came across something during my internet social media scrolling, and I so wish I had written it down, uh, the quote and the person who made it. But it essentially said that, you know, illiteracy of the past, so being illiterate in the past meant you can't read, literally. (laughs) But in the 21st century, illiteracy is, you can read. uh, However, you cannot change your foundational opinions or principles based on having new information. So that's the new illiteracy. And I feel like that really speaks to what you're saying there. I have two more myths I want you to debunk for all of us. And the first one, of course, is some amalgamation of Oh, but if I only eat plants, if I'm a, if I have a plant-based diet, I'm going to be either hungry all the time or my my foods are going to be bland and boring, some amalgamation of those. Is any of that true? Well, again, it's just fear, right? So the, again, just try it for 30 days and see for yourself, right? I mean, the idea that there's going to be it's going to be boring or it's going to be bland is so interesting because as human creatures who are creatures of habit. We eat the same things every day, over and over again. We rotate the same, what, seven meals over and over again. I don't care who you are, vegan or not, vegetarian or not. We all do that because again, it's comforting, it's familiar, and we're creatures of habit. So don't act like this is only about when you're eating plants that you're going to, you know, that you're worried about being bored, then don't be bored, then create variety. That's up to you. Right. And so the idea, and again, like I don't eat three things. I don't eat meat. I don't eat dairy and I don't eat eggs, fish. If you want to separate that out from meat, right. Four things. Um, I eat thousands of plants. I eat thousands of different kinds of plants. And we have so many options in terms of what's available in terms of blandness. We flavor meat with plants. The flavor is in the plants. If you think about what you put on hot dogs and hamburgers, it's mustard and ketchup and barbecue sauce and relish and and onions and garlic and hot sauce. It's plants. We flavor meat with plants. We are the only animal who eats other animals that A, has to flavor it and B, has to cook it because we don't have the pathogens to be able to digest all of the uh, all of the, 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 the bacteria, the pathogens from raw meat. So we do have to cook it. We do have to flavor it. And I know that someone would say, oh, but some people just have like a raw steak rare steak and fine. That's fat. That's fat. And again, fat is in animal is in plant plant foods as well. So the flavor is in the plant foods. And then in terms of yeah, variety and 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 uh just rotate. That's what's so exciting when this is what's what I mean when I say just be open to what's possible because what happens to most of us, and I've heard it from everybody who's who transitions, is you think it's going to be boring and then you stop for a period of time and where you go to reach for the thing that was familiar and you go, oh no, 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 hang on, I'm doing this for 30 days or whatever. Let me go look over in this direction that you've never looked in because you're just ordering the same thing over and over again or making the same thing over and over again. You go, oh, I had no idea. I didn't know this was over here. It was over there before, 
right? It's available to you even if you're not vegan. But now that you're looking in that direction because you're not looking in this direction, it enables you to just go, oh, what's over there? And it actually becomes so much more expansive. We actually expand what we eat and our options. Not that they're not there, but we're not choosing them because. And that's so much of this is an orientation. You know, you could say the same thing about eating out or traveling. Oh, isn't it hard to travel? Well, if you're not looking for plant options, then yeah, you're not going to see them. But if you're looking for them, you're going to find them everywhere, right? So again, it has to do with our orientation and what we're willing to see and what we're willing to do um, to have the experience that we want to have. So if you're afraid of it being bland, spice your food. (laughs) It's that that simple, right? I mean, that's a perfectly practical tip. I'm thinking about my husband. He puts hot sauce on everything. He can put hot sauce on his quinoa bowl and uh, be happy. (laughs) Okay, but you did touch on my third and final myth that I wanted to talk to you about. And that is, honestly, this is something that has tripped me up in the past. I live in an area with a variety of restaurants. There's no food desert in sight where I live. However, I do have trouble going out to restaurants as a vegan or as a aspiring vegan, let's say. What do you say to listeners who say, but I'll never be able to eat out again, or if I do go out to eat, I'll just have to have a salad? Oh, that sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 30-Day Vegan Challenge, in my chapter on eating out, I don't call it eating out. I call it eating out and speaking up. Because a lot of our experience in the world is how we orient to the world. So similar to what I just said, if we orient to a restaurant experience and think, I'm not going to have anything, I'm not going to find anything, this is going to be, you know, I'm going to look like such a pain, everyone around me is going to be looking at me, and we actually manifest that orientation, it looks pretty meek. It looks pretty self-effacing. We go, oh, I don't know. I don't want to ask for anything. I don't want to be a pain. I don't want everyone to see me kind of asking. And then we don't get what we want because we forget that, A, we're paying for the food. (laughs) And B, we can ask for what we want. And so, I mean, look, practically speaking, yeah. Maybe in an American restaurant, you're going to you know, probably be limited because it's so much based on animal meat and dairy. Uh, and yet a lot of restaurants are incorporating now you know, impossible burgers, beyond burgers, whatever. But when you're in just a, a re- any other restaurant, any other ethnic restaurant, anything, Thai, Vietnamese, Mexican, Italian, Chinese, I mean, name it, Ethiopian, name it. You will Indian. I mean, you're going to find plant foods because the because the foundation of most cultures is plants. The foundation is plants. It's it's when cultures started becoming wealthier, they started incorporating animal products into their everyday meals, which we've never done before in the history of humankind. So the foundation is plants. There's plant options in every culture, in every cuisine. However, you have to ask for it. And menus are there as a menu, literally as something that looks fixed, but you can ask for something different. And often the chefs are very happy to oblige. They're often kind of happy to do something different because they're making the same thing over and over again for a chef who tends to be creative. That's kind of boring for them. So you go into an Italian restaurant and you say, I see that you have a pasta, you know, with red sauce and it has meat, like, you know, or has meatballs. Can you make just like a pasta with red sauce that doesn't have any meat? Can you make a pasta arrabbiata? Can you make um? Can you make just a pasta with olive oil and garlic and parsley? Right. That's a very t- typical Italian dish. Uh, that's very simple. But you have to change the way you're looking at 
your experience in the world. And if you change your orientation from I'm such a pain, this is going to be limiting to I can ask for what I want, I'm paying for it, and I'm going to be as open and and have the, the highest hopes possible, then, you know, highest expectations possible, then you're going to have a very different experience depending on the orientation. A common thread throughout your responses today, Colleen, seemed to be change your mindset. Like if you go into it feeling all grumpy and in a bad mood and feeling as though you're giving something up, you're setting yourself up for failure in some ways. Like change your mindset, flip the script, go in thinking I'm doing this for the betterment of the planet, betterment for my own health, betterment for the animals. I'm doing this to step into my compassion, even perhaps to fully live my values, I think is what you're saying. So just tweaking the script a little bit could likely go a long way. I think it's everything. I mean, it's everything. It's If we look at every experience as an opportunity, then it's so endless just it's infinite in terms of what we can experience and and how we orient orient to the world and orient to our own selves and everything around us makes a, a world of difference it's an opportunity it's exciting it's empowering it's it like if we don't change and evolve and learn and grow it's called death we're just dead like what is the point of living if we're not here to grow and learn and try new things and challenge ourselves and stretch our comfort zones what is the point of living if we just want to stay static there's an expression in the Tao Te Ching that says you know um, when we're born we're we're soft and supple and when we die we're dry and brittle right that's do you want to be dry and brittle or do you want to be soft and supple and that's that is what i'm talking about I want to be soft and supple. So I'm going to to try again. I'm going to change my mindset and I'm going to report back. Colleen, tell my listeners where they can find more of you online, but also your books, your podcast. You have so much goodness to share. So where can we find it? Thank you. So joyfulvegan.com is my website. That is my Instagram handle as well. My name is a lot longer and more complicated to say. So it's easier just to say joyful vegan. And the joyful vegan was the most recent book that was in 2019. Unfortunately, it was a victim of COVID, but it is still out. And that is a lot of what we were talking about today around the social aspects and the cultural aspects and the emotional aspects of making a shift like this. And then the 30 day vegan challenge, as I said, that really helps people. You can find that at also joyfulvegan.com. You can find it in the menu and you can take the online challenge or you can get the book. And then the joy of vegan baking and other cookbooks of mine are still out there. And then my podcast is called Food for Thought. And this is my 17th year uh, producing Food for Thought. So people can find that over wherever they listen to podcasts. After they listen to yours, they can listen to mine. Well, I'll link to all of that in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so, so much, Colleen. I got a lot personally out of our conversation today. So thank you so much for your inspiration. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me and do report back. I want to hear how things are going. Listeners, that's a wrap. My friends, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation, whether you have plans to eat more plants or not. I hope this conversation and its larger themes resonated with you. If it did, let me know. Email me. Leave the show a review. That's the best way. I'll be honest. That's the best way to get my attention and fast. Leave the show a review. If you hated it, you can tell me that too. I will be back tomorrow for headlines. Have an amazing 
day and see you tomorrow.